Okay. So welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files. Forms for ordering CDs for these speakers and a place to donate to keep this special service active. Okay. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of the individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would like to now introduce our speaker for tonight, my brother, David G. Thank you. Hi, I'm David. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Rashad, thank you for having me. Um, it's just so, such an honor to be here. It's a trip. Um, I haven't been in this room in years, and just sitting back where I used to sit, I remember who I used to be, and I'm just like, I've changed so much. Um, just in the last couple of years, and before that, the last couple of years, and I just, you know, I've been in these rooms long enough to really understand the seasons of recovery, and, um, you know, three or four years ago, I could have been sitting in the same chair, just filled with grief and sadness, and today it can be just filled with gratitude and love. Um, so, yeah, I've been in these rooms 14 years. Uh, I have 11 and a half years of abstinence. Uh, my abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, and no sugar. And um, it's really the least interesting part of my life today is, you know, what I'm abstaining from. Uh, but when I got here, it's all I cared about. I just cared about losing weight, getting to the right body, being able to take my shirt off, um, not binging, not purging, uh, you know, not stuffing my face with sugar before I even leave the Trader Joe's parking lot. And in my mind, all the time, it was just food, body, what are they thinking of me? How am I going to get more? How am I going to get rid of it? And um, there was little room for others. There was little room for grace. There was little room for partnership. Um, it was just me, me, me. And, um, you know, when I got here, it was kind of a rude awakening to realize that my, my problem is not the food, and it's not the bulimia, and it's not my body. Um, that was just a symptom to something a lot deeper um, and greater. And, you know, I, I heard this idea in recovery a couple of years ago that the issues are in our tissues. And um, the more I stay here and the more I help others and the more I, you know, work the program again and again, I realize that um, my issues are in my tissues. You know, I'm not a compulsive overeater because of how I grew up, but um, so many of what I go through, you know, so many of the challenges that I have today it, it has nothing to do with reality. It's just a, some kind of distorted um, reimagining of childhood trauma. And this program and the 12 steps allow me to heal it so that I can live a new life with no reference to the past. And that was a promise that I heard when I got here. And, you know, what it was like for me, I grew up on Long Island um, in a town called Cold Spring Harbor. It was, you know, Billy Joel used to sing about it. it was a, we had a house on, our, on the water overlooking the whole town, beautiful house, um, beautiful cars, beautiful dogs. Um, and, you know, on the inside, it was just a completely different story. My dad is a doctor. My mom's an early childhood trauma psychologist. And if you shake my family tree, every sort of um, ism and dysfunction and mental illness just, you know, falls to the ground. And I didn't know that as a kid. I just, all I had were my feelings growing up. And, um, you know, I always share the first memory I have of childhood. Um, you know, I had this, you have this big dad, just rageful, angry, 
triggered all the time, storming through the house, um, addict type of dad. And he came home one night and he was just storming and um, my sister provoked him and he was chasing my sister through the house and calling her a fat effing pig and ended up grabbing her and like threw her up against the wall and he was grabbing her chins and um, I'm five or six years old and she's like eight or nine screaming. We're all in tears. And I remember um, feeling as a kid, as a, as a toddler, as a young kid, like I have to fix it. I have to be the referee. I have to get in the middle. And, um, you know, like a little Captain Alanon, like I went and tried to grab my dad off my sister. And I was always trying to make everything okay for everybody else and totally neglecting myself. And my dad, like, grabbed me and threw me up against the wall. And I remember we had this long hallway, and I, I was looking at my mom, who was standing in her doorway, just begging for her and screaming for her to help us. And she went into her room and closed the door and just, like, left me and my sister to fend for ourselves. And looking back now, you know, 14 years in the rooms, like, oh, my God, I look at my mom so different. Um, she was so sick. She had no tools. She should have never been married. She should have never had kids. Um, but all I felt as a kid was my mom doesn't love me and my mom can't protect me and I got to do it all myself. And um, it, it, the abuse with my dad kept getting worse and worse. And I remember when court took away custody um, and then I didn't talk to him for like 15 years. I, I came home with my mom and she said, David, you're the man of the house now. And I remember, even as like a seven-year-old, just feeling like this is too much. And I know it's a thing that we have in the rooms where like even as kids, the feeling of like, life's just too hard, like it's too much, like I'm just exhausted. And uh, I was always terrified that my dad was going to come and take me and my sister and like drive us to Fort Lauderdale and like kill us in the swamp. Like as a kid, I, I just had a distorted mind, a warped mind, as it says in the literature, before I ever picked up food, you know, this idea in the big book, what was the thought, or the, you know, the literature, what was the thought that preceded the first drink? I'm an addict before I start using substances, like, I know it in my heart, like, I have a, I had a mind that just told me all sorts of scary stories, and all sorts of, you know, crazy realities, and um, I listened to it, and I remember we were visiting my grandfather's house in Florida, or his apartment, and I remember going outside on the balcony, looking over, thinking, if I jump, all of my problems are going to go away. And then my next thought was, but nobody's going to show up at my funeral. And I was a second grader, and it wasn't until I started working with my first sponsor, where she was like, David, normal kids didn't think like that. But, like, I had no reference to what normality was for children. Like, I just was in my own warped, you know, children of alcoholic, you know, upbringing. So I found the food. Um, the food became my mom. The food became my dad. Thank God it wasn't heroin. Thank God it wasn't fentanyl. Thank God it wasn't something that could have killed me instantly. But the food saved my life. Um, whenever I was scared that my dad was going to come, I would just eat over it. I would eat over it. I would eat over it. And uh, very quickly, I became the fat kid in school and, you know, 60 pounds overweight. I was bullied. Um, from probably age 7 until 15, you know, not the longest stretch, but those were the years, like, where I watch other people have the first kiss, have the first girlfriend, 
you know, have friendships. Like, I didn't have anything. Like, I would just go home and eat over it and then eat over the shame that people were making fun of me. And I was just in this weird cycle. And uh, my sister also suffers from this ism. Um, big shock, but we had connecting rooms, and I used to hear her purging every night, and one summer, she lost, like, a ton of weight, and I wanted what she had, and I went into her room one day, and I found her diet pills, and they say it's a progressive illness. Um, I went from being, like, 60 pounds overweight one year to about 20 to 30 pounds underweight the next year. Um, and it was all in the course of my sophomore year to my junior year in high school, and I transferred high schools, and on the outside, I was, like, slim. I became a three-sport athlete. Um, I was starting to get a lot of attention from, other, from, you know, the other sex, and I loved it. I couldn't do anything about it. I was totally filled with fear, but I loved the attention. I lo- you know, I was always invisible my whole life, and to be seen and to feel like people actually liked me. Um, but in my mind, I was still the fat kid. And, you know, just because I had a skinny body didn't mean that, you know, the way I looked at it changed. Like, I'd look in the mirror and I just saw fat. And I'd go in the shower and i cut off imaginary, you know, pieces of my body every morning in the shower. Um, but what my, what my programming became was I have to go to any lens to keep off this weight. And it started with three diet pills a day. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was taking 15 pills of hydroxycut. And I remember it was around the year 2006. And I remember reading the story about an 18-year-old who died taking hydroxycut um, from having seizures. And I was having very similar side effects. Like I'm, I was having heart problems. I, was, I passed out at sports practice. Um, I was going down a very dark road, but I couldn't stop. And it continued into college, um, five colleges in four years, just always cutting and running and moving and where's the bathroom to purge in, where's the gym to exercise in. Um, I don't remember having any friendships in college. I didn't have any girlfriends. Like, I just skipped over all of that. Um, And by the time I hit my bottom, I was a senior in college. I was living in Manhattan. And I was, you know, I've shared about this a lot. I was going from every single Whole Foods. I don't know why, but I was going from every single Whole Foods, binging, binging, binging every day, and then counting on my phone how many thousands of calories I binged that day. And I knew in my head the calorie count of dried mangoes, dried apples, almond butter. Like, I I had, my head was just filled with numbers all day long calculating. And then I'd go down to my gym in Soho, and I wouldn't leave the gym until the calories that I binged that day matched the calories on the treadmill, or matched the calories on the treadmill. And that was my life. That was my cycle. Um, And I'd go home to Brooklyn, and I'd say, tomorrow's going to be different. I promised myself I have the willpower. I'm strong. I'm smart. And by 11 o'clock, I'd be on and cracking. You know, this disease is a power greater than myself. There's no amount of willpower. There's no amount of diet pills. There's no amount of, um, you know, diet suppressions or anything or diets, you know, Atkins or cabbage, whatever. Like, I've tried everything. Laxatives. Nothing could stop the disease. And the disease grows. It's like Godzilla. Like, it gets bigger over time unless I treat it. And it just kept progressing and getting bigger. And by the time I hit my bottom... I, uh, it was Thanksgiving, it must have been 14 years ago, um, 
I was in, I was at Connecticut with my best friend's family and my family, and I binged Thanksgiving before the dinner even started, and I was drunk, and I was binging, and I went up to my best friend's bathroom, and I was purging his bathroom, um, and I came down, and everybody was sitting at Thanksgiving dinner waiting for me, and they were like, where are you? Where were you? And I looked at my mom, and I just like cursed her out. And they kicked me out, and I, I, had, I took the ferry back to New York, and I said, it's done. Like, I'm going to take my life. There's literally, I'm failing out of college. I have no money. I hate my parents. I haven't seen my dad in 15 years. I was still a virgin. I had no friendships. I couldn't commit to anything. Nobody could ever count on me. I was always getting texts, where are you? Where were you? What happened to you? Like, that was my life. I was not... In my life, I was just skirting around it, trying to just survive. And I went back to my mom's house on Long Island, and I said, okay, I'm going to have one final binge, um, as we do. And I'm, it was, you know, it was November, so there's leftover Halloween candy, and I'm binging, and I'm going through the kitchen, and I'm doing the mad wizard thing. I'm putting things in the microwave, salt, sugar, taking it out, eating it, putting it in the garbage, taking it out. Um, and then I started binging my way through my mom's pantry, and the OA 12 and 12, like, fell out onto the floor. And it's not like, the crazy thing is not that it fell out, and my mom's a psychologist. She had every single book you could have as a kid. The crazy thing is, like, in my binge, I picked it up. Um, and I know we all know what it's like to be, rad, you know, that animal that just can't stop and a partner is not going to stop you or a boss. Like, there was nothing that could stop me. But somehow, the 12 and 12 fell out and I picked it up. And I went into my room and I opened it up and I was like, ooh, what is Overeaters Anonymous? It was like exactly what I was doing. And I opened up the, pre I think it's the preamble. And it said something like, we of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And that sentence, like, truly, the first 20 years of my life, I thought I was the only person. Obviously, my sister had it too, but I, I didn't know that this was a thing. Like, I didn't know that we, you know, assembled and spoke about our problems and that there was a way to get better. Like, I thought I was going to die. Like, I was convinced I wasn't making it to 21. Like, I, I didn't think that I would have a whole life of recovery from this disease. And I was, like, blown away by that sentence. I probably read, like, six chapters that night. And I went to my sister's apartment a couple weeks later, and I said... <laughs> Uh, Michelle, I'm a compulsive overeater, I'm a bulimic, I'm going to die. And she said, you need to go to OA. And she printed out the OA New York City meeting list. And my first meeting was an AB meeting on the Upper West Side. Um, it was like a blizzard out, and I still somehow got there. And, um, you know, the power of recovery works in my life. At, at least this is my experience. It worked even before I got abstinent. You know, it worked. It helped me pick up that book. Like, who, what, how did I pick up that book? How did I find that at the right time when I was about to take my life? It worked through my sister printing out a meeting list. You know, it got me to the Upper West Side from Williamsburg in a blizzard. It got me to walk in when I'm just so scared of everything. And, you know, people, when I came in, it wasn't the easiest, like, acclimation. People would look at me and be like, 
you're so young. What are you doing here? Or you're a guy. What are you doing here? And I just hated it. And I'm like, if I'm if I'm this young, desperate, like clearly I've been through a lot. Like I didn't have it all. Like I didn't have the happiest childhood, and I'm here when I'm 20. Um, but I just kept coming back, and I kept hearing, find a sponsor who has what you want, and ask he or she how you know what they're doing um, to achieve it. And I would I had like my checklist. And I wanted the sponsor to be in the entertainment industry and to drive a Mercedes. I mean, I'm 20, so, like, have a hot wife. Like, all very not necessary important things. And I would look for that person, and they weren't anywhere. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard feeling. Sorry, I'm not going to curse. It's a hard feeling to feel like you're not, like, that there's not a place for you in OA. Um, so even today as a sponsor, whenever I see a young guy, I typically end up sponsoring that or like, I just, I don't say no to young people who are in need of help. Um, cause I know what it was like asking so many people who are like, Oh, we don't have time or we can't sponsor you. Um, so I used to share about nobody wants to sponsor me. Poor me, poor me. I ended up moving out to LA from New York by like this God child. Um, when I was two years in the rooms, and I still wasn't abstinent, and it was about Thanksgiving, you know, 11 and a half years ago, and it was it was Thanksgiving week, and I shared 7.30 a.m. sunset meetings I'd go to every day, and um, I said, nobody wants to sponsor me, I think I'm just going to leave the program or something like that, and this woman comes up to me after, and she's like, I'll temporarily sponsor you. And I looked her up and down, and I was like, mm, no, <laughs> like, hard pass. But in my heart, like, what came out was, okay, let's try it. And she didn't have a car. She was a lesbian. Like, everything that I thought I needed, like, God showed me completely different. And the week that we started working the steps, I got abstinent. And I've been abstinent ever since. And, you know, that first year with that sponsor, who she's not even in the rooms anymore, but she, I, I still talk to her. She still has such a huge part of my heart. Um, you know, she'd take the bus, like, every week to Culver City to meet me and go through the steps. And in that time, I, I had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps that we were working together. And, you know, I'm powerless over food. It, I... I was able to admit complete defeat when I got here with the food that, you know, and, you know, I went to this workshop and they talked about sugar and they equated it with being an alcoholic. And I, that all was, seemed very true to me. When I ate sugar, I became an alcoholic because I'm also in that room. Um, I know the phenomenon of craving. And when I eat sugar and when I eat alcohol, it does the same thing in my body. I can't stop. I just want more. And get out of my freaking way because I'm going to get some. Like, I will drive anywhere and get anything to just fill my craving. But, you know, put the plug in the jug or, you know, just get abstinent. And then I see the dash, you know, that my life had become unmanageable. And for me, in my experience, that it's not about the food. It's not about the substances. Like, that's about my thinking. My thought life had become unmanageable. And when I had gone through the steps, you know, I've been through the steps many times, and how it really started clicking in my head was I'm powerless over food. I'm powerless over sugar and flour. Hundred, The only thing I can do perfectly in this program is I don't eat those foods no matter what. 
Dash, my life is unmanageable. I had a sponsor who used to say, David, watch your mind. Start watching you know, the, the thoughts that float through the waves of your brain and write down what are your most repetitive thoughts. You know, This idea that neuroscientists say we have 40 to 60,000 thoughts a day, but addicts, we have four thoughts that we think about 40 to 60,000 times. <laughs> like For me, it was all about the food when I came in. Food, body, bulimia, when am I going to find the one? Like, those are my thoughts all day long. Today, it's like, how are we going to afford a house? Zillow, Zillow, Zillow. And, like, it's still unmanageable. And if I'm not watching that and observing that, I'm in the same pattern of disease. And I wonder why I'm unhappy today. And it's like, I have to watch my mind. The same thing that I did when I got here with the food or with alcohol or with drugs, I have to do it with everything, with my thoughts, with Zillow, with my wife, with my car, with whatever. Like, I just have to work these steps and apply the principles of the steps. So I started writing down my most repetitive thoughts, and I was like, ooh. And I'd have it in my phone, and I would share them with my sponsor every night. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty crazy. Like, I'm pretty, those aren't real, uh, like, those aren't healthy thoughts. And I needed to accept that. I needed to watch my mind enough to get into a step two process. Because why am I going to, anything restore us to sanity unless I believe and accept in my heart that I'm insane? Like, I'm just doing homework if I don't really accept the insanity of my thinking. And, you know, step two for me, it was David on David all the time. Like, David talking to David all day long. I was just, my mind was just hijacked from the morning I, from the time I got up to the time I went to bed, just thoughts. Like, my, I, I didn't know how insane I was until I got a quiet mind. Um, but um, my mind was just talking to me all day long. Trader Joe's, that person's not checking me out fast enough. The car, they're not, you know, it's a green light. Why aren't they going? Like, wherever. My dad, I hate him. I haven't seen him in 15 years. I'm going to kill him. Like, that person, she cheated on me. I'm going to blah. Like, all day long, or that person, she looked at me. Does she love me? Do I go on Craigslist misconnections? Like, all day long, I was just talking, talking, talking. Mind, power, disease. Like, I think it's about the food. This is a mind, power, disease. And that's what it says in the literature. Like, this is a disease that's centered in my mind. And there are other groups that I really love and appreciate in OA. The sober eating, the, you know, send your sponsor everything that goes into your body. Not for me. Like, if I emphasize too much on the food, I'm treating the wrong malady. I'm not treating my mind, and that's what needs to be treated. And the more I treat my mind, the more I live in a world where food, exercise like a nut or, you know, extra bites, it's just not a reality. Like, I just don't need it because I have a treated mind. Um, you know, in step three, I learned that it's, it's about turning my will and my, thought, my thoughts and my actions over to the care of God. You know, and, you know, Emmett Fox, well, I'm not supposed to quote other literature, but the, the person who wrote a very important piece of literature that influenced, you know, the people who wrote the big book, he talks about that the secret place is in our mind. And that's, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm having great actions, but I'm thinking about you negatively. Like, if I have negative thoughts, it's just as harmful to me as if I'm, giving people the finger at, you know, red lights all day long. So I have to treat my thoughts 
all day long and I have to turn them over to God. And, I, you know, when I got here, I was like, don't tell me there's a God unless you've been through what I've been through. Like, I was very not a God person, um, but uh, the idea of a power that's greater than me, I can get down with that. And I used to say, like, to people, how do you pray? What am I supposed to say? And I learned prayers in this program. God, power, whatever you are, Homer Simpson, light bulb, can you protect me from my mind? Can you just have me have a new experience? Oops, my mind's telling me I'm fat again. Can you just help me see my body in a different light? And I started having a new interaction with my mind, like all day long. And, you know, I went from a mind that just told me I was fat, ugly, yoga class, don't take your shirt off, like mind, 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 negative, to God, can you be with me today? I'm scared. And I started having space in my thoughts for the first time. And I'd go, like, hours without negative self-talk. And I was like, I can get down with this. And then step four and five for me, I came in a victim. And I had been victimized. You know, I had an abusive father. I had a mentally ill mom. Every girlfriend I ever had cheated on me. Like, I, you know, I, I had been through pain. But when I got to the fourth column, it didn't matter where the freedom lied was seeing my part. And what I saw when I did my part was in every relationship, if somebody hurt me, didn't matter how big or small it was, off with your head, out of your kingdom, I never want to see you again. And I started to look at that. And, you know, I take that to God in 6 and 7, where it's not just, hopefully it's not about the food anymore, it's not about the body, it's about my defects, it's about my defected character, it's about the way that I have the inability to form true partnerships, or I'm so scared that this person's going to leave me, or they're going to leave me, or the boss is going to blah, blah, blah. I have to take that to God in 6 and 7 to help build a new character, that is more confident and is more okay in my skin. And I get it. The issues are in my tissues. I grew up in a world with a father where it was easier for me to hide and be, you know, invisible and, you know, scared of authority figures. But that's not my life today. Like, I don't have, that's not, I'm not in an abusive umbrella anymore. Like, I can build a new reality. And that was a promise that I heard here. And when I got to eight and nine, I'll tell a couple stories. Um, the first time I, I went through the steps with my sponsor, she was like, don't touch your dad's stuff. Just keep going. You'll be able to... I, and I think, looking back, she didn't want to touch it with me because I've had new sponsors since then who helped me get in there and break it open and really, like, investigate. But the first time, I was like, you're going to go through the steps again. You don't have to shine a light on everything. Just do it to the best of your ability and then do it again. And um, a couple years into the steps, I was still angry all the time. And I had a sponsor who said, you might want to look at your relationship with your father. And I was like, I'm never talking to him again. He's a monster. If I see him, I'm going to kill him. And my sponsor used to say, well, you're drinking that resentment, expecting him to get poisoned. And that's hurting you. And I was like, okay, I'm so selfish that I'll look at my resentment towards my father because I don't want to be in pain anymore. And that's kind of the inverse of, like, how this program works. So I started looking at my resentment towards my dad. And step eight doesn't ask you to do anything other than, you know, become willing. And I become willing through prayer. 
you know, I have to ask God if I'm not willing to give me the willingness. So I pray for the willingness. And I used to pray for months for my dad, just God, help me be willing to be willing to make amends to my dad. And um, one day I found myself in New York making amends to him. And it wasn't anything that he did. I wasn't letting him off the hook. Um, But for years, he had tried to make amends to me. He had tried to get back into my life. He had told me how sorry he was. He wrote me letters. Never gave him a chance. Deleted his voicemails, deleted his emails. And like, how is that working for me in my life, in my relationships, when people hurt me and I don't know how to forgive? Like, how is that working for me? Because um, at the at the time I was still a virgin, I had no like marriage prospects. Like clearly, my way of doing life just doesn't work. So I was willing to do anything that anybody I trusted told me. And um, you know, one day I found myself in New York making amends to my dad, and he said, "I would like to start having a relationship with you." And I was like, whoa, slow down, Turbo. Like, step nine didn't tell me anything about that. Um, But we did. You know, we started talking like once a month on the phone. And then about a year later, I found myself in New York spending a weekend with him. And I was like four or five years of recovery at this point, on fire for OA, all my books everywhere I went. And, um, you know, he came down one morning, he was living in Westchester, and he saw the table, it looked like this. Like, this was where, on vacation, I would bring this. And um, if you're listening, it's like the literature table. I would bring literature everywhere. Um, And he said, like, I see you're very into your OA classes, maybe I can go with you. And he called them classes. And I took him to a meeting, um, and at the end of the meeting, the secretary said, are there any newcomers here today? And he raised his hand, and he said, my name's Lou, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and I think I've been in denial. And people were hugging him after the meeting. It was a, it was a trip. And I, I remember flying home being like, that's why. It's not about me. There's a power greater than myself that when I just show up, do the action, do the right action, God provides. And um, two years ago, or th- three years ago, I was in New York for a work trip, and I, I don't think I was, on, you know, I'm always in a step in some program, but I don't think I was in a step nine, but I was walking down New York City, just a street, and I heard a name of my childhood best friend, who I cut off, like I do, for probably ten years, um, and he had no idea why, but I was an addict, and I cut him out of my life completely, and I just heard his name in my head, and I DM'd him on Instagram. I was like, yo, long time. <laughs> Where you at? And it turned out, like, somehow we were able to, me go to his apartment before I went back to L.A. And we spent an hour together, and he's become my best friend again. And two years ago, he got married, and I was his, you know, I was his best man. And that, for me, is recovery. It's not about the food. It's not about the body. It's not about getting to the thing that I want with the food or the body. It's about restoring relationships. And, you know, I have people who count on me today. And step 10, 11, and 12. All right, 10 minutes left. Step 10, 11, and 12. It's about my life today. Like, God constantly gives me more affairs to practice my principles in. And um, it's about how am I dealing with it? Am I applying the 12 steps to all of my affairs today or I'm not? And, um, you know, a couple years ago I I got heartbroken, as a lot of you know, 
And I remember that night, um, I went to a fellow's house, and I got on my knees, and I said to God, I said, God, I am so done trying. If you want me to be with somebody, you have to make it so abundantly clear, but there's no choice but for me to pursue her. I think I even said him. I was so willing. I was like, whatever. Um, and I felt grace and surrender. Like, I was in a true surrender. And I know when other people are in it, I'm like, you're in a gift right now. It feels horrible, but the surrender experience is the greatest gift because miracles are on the way. God doesn't close doors without opening windows. I know without a, like without a, without a doubt. And the next day, I um, called my sponsor, my AA and Al-Anon sponsor, who I've worked with for like seven years. He knows everything about me. I knew everything about him. He's like, he's from Australia. He's like, mate, just come to my house. Like, us program people, we're not meant to grieve alone. And I drove across L.A. Um, from Venice all the way to Hancock Park because I was willing to not be alone that day. And uh, it could have went a way different way. I could have went to the food. I had a sponsor at the time who was in the food, went through the same thing that I did. Um, but I was willing to get help. And I went to my sponsor's house. And um, turns out my sponsor had a cousin from Australia that he never told me about. Um, and he had moved her from L.A. two days before um, to work at his company. And we met the next day. And uh, within a year, we were married. And next week, we're celebrating three years married. And it is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I could have went to the food. I could have went right, but I went left. Um, it's a one-day-at-a-time thing. Eleven years doesn't matter. Like, the choice is today. Am I going towards recovery today? Am I calling my sponsor? Am I helping others? Am I cleaning house? Am I trusting God? Or am I in self-will wondering why that person hurt me so much? It's like, it's, it's as simple as that. And um, we have a beautiful marriage. And I, it was, it's beyond my wildest dreams because the one before I thought was the one. And um, when it happened, I was like, why? Why, God, why? And now I know why. Three years later, I know why. Um, so if you're in the why, God, just hold on. Like, you're just in a hallway. And when you look back, you'll be like, oh, that makes sense. It makes sense now. And um, I'm just so grateful that I stayed, that I'm here, um, that I work my program to the best of my ability. I'm at a healthy body weight. The food doesn't call to me 99% of the time. Um, I love my life. Um, I just created a big work thing that's out in the world. Um, and I have other really big things happening, and it's scary. And I don't call work people. Like, I don't call... Like, program people help me with work fear, even if they're not in my industry. Because the solution is the same solution that I used way back when I was in the food. Um, the 12 steps of OA are not about just food. It's about life. This is a design for living. And if I work these principles in all of my affairs, I can have a life that's beyond my wildest dreams. And I can say that today because I do. Um, I absolutely do. And uh, my dad gave the toast at my wedding. And if he told me that 14 years ago, I would have said, you're out of your mind. Um, 
And, you know, I've had a messy relationship with my mom and my sister over the years. And somehow my wife coming into the picture has, like, I don't know, it, it helps me show up with them. And all of my relationships have been restored. Um, my mom lost her mind in COVID. And, you know, I had gone years without talking to her because I was convinced that the health, healthiest thing for my recovery is to not let somebody so mentally ill into my life. And that was true at the time. I was in a season of that. And now I'm in a season of, you know, showing up for my mom like a baby. She's truly a child. And, uh, you know, I went, I was just back in New York for my wife's birthday, and we took my mom out for an ice cream sundae, and I had a salad, and that's how I show up for my mom today. I don't ask her for money. I don't ask her to be a mom. I see who she is, and I show up to the best of my ability. So I'll open up for the last six minutes for questions, and thank you so much for letting me share. Yeah, Jesse. Thank you, David. Um, can you talk more about your relationship with your sister and how that's changed? Sure. Um, can I talk about my relationship with my sister and how that's changed? You know, all I can say is if you grow up in trauma, you know, two people are going to have two completely different experiences, and they're going to be very wounded. And it took me, I think, I don't know her part, I know my part, once I had enough recovery and got married and got on my feet in all of my other areas, then I was able to show up as, a, as an adult, healthy person to that relationship. And it's still a work in progress, but we were just back in you know, Connecticut visiting her, and there's such... Um, I don't know. Like, I, I try not to doubt the years that went by because um, everything always happens on God's time, you know, at exactly the right time. And, you know, she just had two kids, and we showed up for them. And it, we're in a new season. That's all I can say. We're in a season of regrowth and um, reunion, and it's beautiful. And um, we try not to dwell on the past. You know, we try to just look forward. And I will say my mom losing her mind, I mean, she really lost her mind, um, ended up in a psych ward, electric shock therapy, thinking she was, like, head of a, you know, mafia sex trafficking. Like, she truly, um, it was really bad. And I think that brought my, you know, after all, my mom brought my family together. So it all happens weirdly, perfectly. That's just what I know. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you work both programs or how you do multiple programs. Uh, multiple programs. I'm in, like, probably. <laughs> oh, how do I work multiple programs? I hear a lot of people who are like, I can't work more than one step at the same time. I've never had that issue. I'm in, like, probably a million programs. And... You know, I used to hear, work the steps that are on fire. My, no area in my life's on fire today. Um, I just, know, you know, and I had a sponsor who we went through his fourth step, and he's like, shit, do I need to work another program? And I reframed it, and I said, you get to have another solution. Um, and for me, I go to all these different meetings because I'm married, career, you know, I don't want the food to, you know, one piece of sugar and I'm done. 
you know, my, you know, I know one little cupcake, and my life's probably down the drain. So I, it's a humbling thing that I have to work multiple programs, but I look at it like, you know, I grew up in a childhood where I didn't have a lot of support, and now I get so much love and support, and men and women in recovery who show up for me, and I do for them, like, don't miss out on it, is what I would say. Yeah. Um, you said that you really have to treat your thoughts. Can you say more about that? I know you talked about giving them to God. Um, yeah, so the question was, uh, can I talk more about treating my thoughts? So I, my best friends are in recovery. The three best men at my wedding I met in the rooms. Like, I'm surrounded by recovery. I worked with someone in recovery. Um, for me... It's about exposing my mind every day. In the home group that I'm in, in another program, there's a big emphasis on don't talk about the food or the substance or whatever. Just talk about your mind. Like So what I learned in recovery when I'm making outreach calls, that's what I expose when I need help. I'll call my sponsor and I'll say, you know, Jeff, my mind's telling me this today. Can you help me, like, reframe it? And, you know, my best friend, we talk every morning. He's in recovery. And I'll say, what is your mind telling you today? And, like, it's just a way of life where we just talk about our minds. And by the time I get to work, I realize, you know, my mind's telling me lies. And I don't have to listen to it. Yeah, all right. Have you ever gone through a season where, like, big, amazing things aren't happening? It just feels like you're chopping wood and carrying water every day? Like, you know, just doing the daily grind and, you know... I mean, it's not like miserable, but, you know, you just, it's not big, it's not exciting, it's just doing the same deal. Yeah, the question is, uh, do I go through seasons of, like, boring life? And today, for me, boring is good. Like, I love boring. I loved exciting. I mean, I had once dated someone who was like, I mean, I ended up in the emergency room. Um, As some of you know, like, 12 years ago, it was just... I love alcoholic relationships, and I love, like, passion. For me, like, boring is not a bad thing. I guess, you know, underneath your question is, where can I find joy in the day and um, gratitude? Like, if, if I'm going through a couple days where I just feel like blah, I'll know, like, I got to do a gratitude list, or I got to help a sponsee, or I got to go to a meeting where I know, like, there are a lot of newcomers that don't even have a day. Uh, probably time for one more. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you do, like your daily practice for resentments when they crop up? Yeah, uh, I think we're wrapping up. But my daily practice for resentments, I have a weekly call with my sponsor just to go through resentments. Um, and we talk about, you know, I do the writing, and then I read it to him. And then I have a prayer at the end of the call, and then I have to say the prayer for two weeks. Yeah, thanks for letting me share.